And let's pray before we get started. Father, I truly delight to be in your presence. I delight to um, know that you accept me, even, even though I'm such a miserable sinner and I have um, failed more times than I can count. God, I thank you that you accept me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. God, I, I rejoice in that because as life goes on, our sin weighs heavier and heavier upon our shoulders unless we come to you to have you remove all our guilt and shame and sin. So God, I thank you. I praise you for these things. And I pray that your word, your scripture would, um, would speak clearly to our hearts. I think this may be tough for some people to hear today. And I pray that it would be accepted like a seed planted in soft soil. I pray that all the hearts and ears that hear this today would be soft soil, that your word would grow into a beautiful um, plant. I thank you that you never give up on us. Even when we sin and even when we run away from you, you are willing to leave the 99 sheep to go after the one that has gone astray and gotten lost. God, your love is so perfect and, and gracious. And I thank you for going after me all the times that I've left you. And God, we pray that we would be a church full of people who know very well that you will come after them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Mark, chapter 14. And uh, I'm going to start uh, our sermon with an illustration. When I was um, in a, a sophomore, uh, I was playing football, and I was played for Greeley West, go Spartans. And uh, as we were, um, we went over to Loveland to play. Loveland was a bigger school than we were, and they were uh, just bigger and better. And I was playing uh, quarterback and corner, and I was the same size I am now, well, a little skinnier, and so I was 5'8", 155 pounds, but I was very, very self-confident, and so as I um, was playing quarterback, I, we were getting slammed, and and uh, I, was, I was getting hit and sacked all the time, and man, I got beat up that game, but uh, there was one play, and I was playing corner. I was, I was on the end. I was playing defense, and they had a big running back. He was probably 6'2", 230 pounds, and he came running around the edge, and I'm the only guy, and it was on the, like the one-yard line. I was the only guy between him and the end zone. And you know what I said? I said, I got this, right? And you know, I, you know, I was one of those kids that I had wristbands, and I would write on my wristbands like all the college football players, and I had written Philippians 4.13 on my wristband, which you guys know what that verse says. It says, um, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? So I was like, yeah, I can do all things. And so I took my 155 pounds and I tried to tackle this 230-pound running back. And I just got obliterated. Uh, he ran, you know, I came in with good form right around his knees, but he got just as low as me and he just blew me up and pushed me back into the um, end zone and spiked the ball on my face, I'm sure. So... As we, uh, as I was getting up, man, I was a bit woozy, and I actually kind of wobbled my way to the sideline, 
and then came back in to play quarterback the next the next series. So I'm out there, uh, and I and I take the next snap, and I can't remember which way is right and which way is left. Something got jumbled up in my brain, and actually, what is very clear, I had a concussion, but nobody noticed that or saw it. Uh, so I, I take the snap. I don't know what to do, so I fall down immediately, and 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 then I call timeout. And I come off the off the the field, and I'm like, Coach, I don't know which way is right and left. And he's like, looks, takes one look at my eyes, and they're all big and huge and concussion looking, and and he takes me off the field. So that story shows my overconfidence in my own abilities. You know, I tried my best, but it just wasn't good enough. And self confidence is going to be our topic today. And if you Google it right now in your Google, if you're on your phone right now and you're in your computer and you Google self-confidence, it comes up with a definition. And what Google says, the definition is, it is defined as a feeling of trust in one's abilities, qualities, and judgment. Let me read that again. Self-confidence is a feeling of trust in one's abilities, qualities and judgment. Let me, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about today first. I'm going to give you the lesson first so that you know. The world and the devil both want you to have self-confidence, self-trust. They want you to. And that means if the world and the devil both want you to have this quality, this attitude, this trust, then guess what? It is bad for you. Okay? It is unbiblical. It is wrong. It is the opposite of God's will for your life to have self-confidence. God wants you to actually have God-confidence, Christ-confidence, or God-trust. And that's actually the real meaning of that verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He doesn't mean that he can win football games or he can lift up a dump truck or he can um, fly. That is not the meaning of that verse. The meaning of that verse is we can submit to God's will and we can endure all things through Christ. We can give up on our will and instead go with his will instead of our own will. And that is very difficult. That is very, um, but, but that's the way of the cross. We have to die to self and live to God. Um, God wants you to have this God confidence. There's two ways that a man can live in this world, uh, in this life. There's two paths we can take. We can trust God or we can trust in something else. And that something else, 99% of the time, is self. It's very clear. Even as you look at every religion in the world, that is the difference between them. In Christianity, in Christianity alone, our trust is in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Nothing we do. In every other religion, including other versions of Christianity, but every other religion, the Mormons, the Muslims, Buddhism, you know, anything you want to Baha'i, anything, the trust is in something else besides 
God's faithfulness besides Jesus's faithfulness. It's in something you have to do. Have you knocked on enough doors? Have you helped enough old ladies across the street? Have you given enough money? Only biblical truth says that we must trust in Jesus. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been trying to convince every person in this world to trust their own judgment, their own uh, abilities, and their own qualities, instead of trusting in God's word. Do you remember that? That's exactly what his plan with Adam and Eve. He said, don't, I know God said, don't eat this, but you are smart and you could even be smarter and you can judge what's right and wrong. You don't need to listen to God. And it's the same lie that is being told to us every morning as we wake up, every lunchtime, every dinner, all day long. It's being force fed down our throats. From the day we start kindergarten till the day we graduate college and then every day after, every way that Satan can, he is forcing that message on you. Trust in self. Trust in self. So it's really a war. Self versus God. And this war is raging this day. I know it seems maybe quiet. The snow is falling today, but there is still a spiritual battle happening. Will you trust in yourself or will you trust in God? Will you trust in and lean on your own abilities or in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross? This is crazy, but if you Google self-confidence, you will get a billion screaming messages about how you need self-esteem and self-confidence and blog posts and, and, you know, medical things and all these people's opinions. And I'm telling you right now, you don't. Your problem is not a lack of self-confidence. It is over confidence in yourself. And that is the difference between Christianity and what Jesus, the path Jesus asked us to go down, and the world and the devil and what they want us to to do. The devil always wants you to think that the problem is you're not you don't you, you don't matter enough that you're not listening to yourself enough you don't have enough self-care going on you're not taking care of yourself you're not listening to yourself that is a lie of the devil friends it is a lie so he inspires people to write blogs and teach classes about how to fix your self-esteem and confidence and it's flooding this world And it's a complete lie, trash, rubbish, whatever word you want to say. It's the same lie as as in the garden. When the truth is simple, you are sinful and you need God. You don't need more of yourself. We don't need more of me. We need more of God and less of me. I need to decrease and he needs to increase. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself. And follow me. We need God. We need his mercy and grace. The lie is that you're good and you don't need anything from anybody. You need to take care of you. Can you see how if you believe that lie, you will never actually believe that you need 
God or his grace. So if you go all in with with Satan's message of self-confidence, you're going to live your whole life saying, I don't need anybody else. I just need me. I just need to get me taken care of. I need to get me figured out. And you will never get to the point where you call upon God on your knees and say, God, save me. God, I need you to save me, to change me. So you'll live your whole life searching for something in yourself, which is a bottomless pit where nothing can be found that is good. That's the truth. Don't look for what you need in a place that it cannot be found. What you need is not found in you. It is only found in God. You could switch it around the other way. You have a hole inside you. It's a God-shaped hole, and nothing you can try to stuff in there is going to fill that God-shaped hole except for him and his grace. But listen to this. It's not just unbelievers that struggle with this lie that's being told. Each and every one of us also struggles with this. Uh, Even if you're a full-on believer, you've been baptized, you want to follow the Lord, you know that you're saved, we still will struggle with this lie. Just like Peter. Peter's a, a prime example of trusting in self. Even though he he loves Jesus and he wants to follow him, his overconfidence is going to get him in a uh, truckload of trouble today. Peter had a positive self-image in this evening. He thought he was pretty good. He thought he was loyal and faithful. His confidence, however, was misplaced, as we are going to see right now as we get into our text. So Mark chapter 14, verse 26. Says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So remember, they just finished their Passover meal, which we learned all about in the last few weeks. Judas has just betrayed Jesus, walked out, and decided he will never follow Jesus. So the rest of the guys are like, man, this is a crazy night. So they sang a hymn, which was the traditional closing of their Passover celebration, and they went to the Mount of Olives. So they were in Jerusalem there, and they just walked down the valley to the Mount of Olives. It's not a very far walk. And while they're walking on the way, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Oh. Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter, he spoke even more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. And they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. All right, so we're going to break this down. We're going to see some amazing stuff. First, they're going to the Mount of Olives, all right? We're going to park here at the Mount of Olives, this this scene that we're going to be investigating. Uh, For a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at these events uh, to really let the power of these events really sink in. Gethsemane means crushing. 
So this place, this garden they're going to called Gethsemane means crushing. Uh, and it's on the Mount of Olives. And uh, these are all great pictures of, of what's going to happen because olives are crushed to produce the olive oil that's needed for fuel and for light and for healing. They used olive oil for, for so many things. And uh, it's produced by crushing. And, it, and as we're going to see, this is the place, this garden, is the place where God is going to crush many things. First, Jesus is going to be crushed. Uh, today, however, we're going to learn about Peter. He's going to have something crushed. And what's going to be crushed in Peter's life tonight is self-confidence. That's what's going to be crushed in Peter's life. God will draw out this poison like uh, poison is drawn from a wound. So the first part of our verse said, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. This is a simple statement of truth by Jesus. He's just, he knows what's going to happen. Uh, it's a fact, but it's not something they want to hear. And sometimes Jesus says stuff that we don't want to hear, right? It's insulting. He tells them that they are going to fail. They're going to fall. This very night, he already knows it. But my pride, just like Peter, my pride is so insulted when, tells me, when someone tells me that I am not good enough. If someone says, you're not going to get this done, you're not going to do it, someone tells me I am destined to fail, I hate that. It stinks. Because my pride that lives in my heart is so confident that I just think if I get one chance, I might succeed. You don't know. You don't know if I may do the right thing. And I hate being told that I am just not good enough, that I am too broken, that I'm too selfish, that I'm too weak to ever succeed on my own. But Jesus knows everything. Jesus doesn't lie, and Jesus tells us the truth, and he tells the truth to his disciples right here. He says, you are all going to fall. You're all going to fail. I'm going to read a verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 right now, uh, which is a good cross-reference for our, our topic here. Romans three ten through 12 says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one does right. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. You see those two words? They've all turned aside. They have all to, uh, they have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, right there, Paul is making the case that everyone has failed. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Is that really true? Have we all sinned? And the answer is yes. Now, that is not what anyone wants to hear. Nobody wants to hear that they have failed, but we have. That's the truth that God gives us. Jesus here, he tells his disciples, you will all fail me. But guess what? Jesus still loves them. He still is for them. Yes, it's true, but it's not the end of the story that we have failed. Because Jesus is about to make all things new. He's about to change the story. 
But that doesn't change where we all start in the story. We all start as broken sinners who should not trust in themselves, but we do. We are failures. We are sinners. God knows and clear, he knows it clearly and he clearly lets us in on this truth. Like a doctor, Jesus has to diagnose the sickness of his patient before he can bring the healing. Our pride and our self-confidence keeps us from listening to the diagnosis. Like a patient running out of the doctor's office, screaming and covering their ears, saying, I don't want to hear about my cancer. That's what our pride and our self-confidence does. I don't want to go to church because they just tell me how much I need God. And I don't need him that much. Pride is sending that attitude to hell. Pride keeps us from receiving the healing that Jesus offers so freely. He wants to bring salvation, but pride keeps us from it. He says here that you will all be made to stumble. That's a very interesting term. This stumbling, just imagine someone tripping, okay? This stumbling is the first step to crushing our self-confidence. Remember I said this night on the Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the Mount of Olives is all about crushing and it's crushing our self-confidence. And this stumbling is very important for every believer. Everyone who wants to follow Jesus needs to, to stumble. They need to go through this. We have to realize how incapable and weak we really are. And you're like, why is this crazy guy smiling while he's saying this? Because it is so freeing to realize and learn and accept that I didn't have to be perfect. But God's love and his grace will come to a sinner who needs him. God doesn't offer his love and grace to the one who succeeds, but to the one who fails. And that means... I qualify because I'm a giant failure when it comes to living up to God's standard. Just like all the disciples here. Once we freely realize that we need to stumble, that we need this breaking, then we can actually get help. You know, so this stumbling, you know, how would these guys stumble? Well, it's probably over the fact that Jesus, as the Messiah, was not going to assert his God power and overthrow the Roman Empire, but rather he was going to submit to them and to the evil Jewish leaders, and he was going to allow himself to be beaten, embarrassed, rejected, and murdered upon the cross. Why would God do that? And that's a stumbling block. Why would you allow yourself to seemingly fail, Jesus? Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Well, that's all we're going to talk about is Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And that word stumbling block is the same root as the word that we're using right here. When we talk about Jesus being killed and Jesus giving up his life, our pride says, I don't 
don't need that. He didn't need to do that. That is a dumb way to go. It's a stumbling block. But if we let ourselves stumble on it, if we see that he surrendered his will to God, and then we see that he did it because of his love for us, then we have no chance, or pride has no chance to remain. We're either going to crucify our pride, we're going to let our pride die, and we're going to humble ourselves before God, or we're going to run away in our pride. So Peter and these boys need to learn a hard lesson. They're going to stumble. And Jesus says, you guys are all going to stumble this night because of me. This reminds me of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, which I try to share with my boys uh, every once in a while because they need it. But it's painful. This verse is so painful because it reminds us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If we, if we think we are all that, God will trip us. God will cause us to stumble. Not because he hates us, not because we're his enemy, but because he loves us and he must step in before pride leads to hell. And so that is why sometimes we go through his discipline. We go through difficult times. Things don't go our way. We get hurt. It is many times because God is working in our lives to humble us. A stumble and a fall is required if pride is present. If you really in your heart think you're the best and you don't need God, there will be difficult times coming to break that attitude. Do you guys remember Nebuchadnezzar? He was the most prideful person in the entire world. He thought he was basically God. Yet, if you remember the story, God was perfectly able to humble him. Nebuchadnezzar is walking around his temple saying, Look at these mighty things that I have built. I am amazing. Everyone should worship me. And God said, All right, I've had enough. I'm done with you. And he took his mind and he made him crazy and he made him as stupid as a cow. He made him fall and stumble until he was uh, laying on his belly in the grass, eating grass as insane as a cow. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Once Nebuchadnezzar finally humbled himself, God gave his mind back and gave him mercy and grace. And that shows that no matter how prideful you've been, once God comes in and breaks you and you stumble and you fall and you, and you fall before him and you demonstrate humility before him, God's response is very predictable. He will accept you. He will give you his mercy and his grace. That is a promise. So why wait? Why delay? Humble yourself now. Get his mercy and his grace today. Why would God be willing to do this for Nebuchadnezzar, the most prideful, arrogant jerk ever. Because God loved him, just as God loves us. God was willing to give him the medicine that his sickness needed. Just like uh, if you're trying to rescue a drowning person who's panicking, they say to bop them on the head, knock them out so that you can actually save them. And sometimes we need that as well. 
Sometimes we need to get bopped on the head. All right, the next part of our text says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a prophecy way back from the book of Zechariah that Jesus is quoting, and it's going to be fulfilled on this exact night. Jesus knows his scriptures and he knows uh, what it is. I'm going to read to you the full verse so you can uh, hear it. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will, ret- then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Jesus in this story, or in this prophecy, is the shepherd. And, uh, you know, his disciples are the sheep, but in a greater sense, we are his sheep. And Jesus will be crushed by the will of God. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about next week, the crushing of Jesus. Tonight, we're talking about the crushing of Peter's pride. But next week, we're going to be talking about the crushing of Jesus. He's going to be beaten, and he's going to be broken, and he's going to be abandoned to die, just as this text says he will be. And all the sheep are going to feel like all hope is lost. There's going to be no way out of this. They're going to feel like they're at the end of their rope, and they might as well give up. But Jesus is doing this for a reason. He is the good shepherd. John 10.10 says, or 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So there's a purpose and a plan for everything Jesus is doing. This is not random. This is a perfect example of his love and him fulfilling the will and plan of his father. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I, the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So Jesus is this good shepherd that gives his life in exchange for the sin of the sheep that he loves. Jesus is the hero. He knows what must be done. He's read the prophecies. He inspired his prophets to write these things. He believes and trusts in his father. He, know, he, he has known What needs to happen for a long time? And this is the night that it's going to happen. Next week, we're going to study in depth the crushing that the precious Jesus is going to go through. The innocent Jesus, the perfect Jesus, is going to be crushed so that the oil of his life could be our healing He goes on to say, but after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. So here, Jesus clearly tells them what's going to happen. He gives them hope. They have no clue what he's talking about, but they will. Oh, they will. He promises them his presence and a future hope. He promises them that he will be alive And that he will not forget about them and he will not abandon them, even though they're a bunch of losers. Even though they're going to abandon him this very night. Even though they don't deserve his love, Jesus has made a commitment to love them. And through this love, they will actually be transformed. Hebrews 13.5 says, and, and this just makes this so precious and so Such a wonderful promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you may be feeling like you don't deserve that. Like you have done things where God himself would turn his back on you. And let me tell you right now, that is only Satan's voice. God would say, come to me now. 
I will accept you. I will forgive you. I will restore you. But you must come to me and me alone, trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, and you will be forgiven. Jesus is nothing but faithful and true. He is gentle and full of compassion. Why would you want to keep running away from him today? Seriously, think about it. Jesus is not standing there with a, with a, you know, a switch to, to whip you once you come home. He truly wants to love you and to forgive you and to work in your life. Why would you run? The only reason why we run is because Satan has us tricked. We think that God is going to keep us from what's fun. We think that God is going to keep us from what we want. When in reality, God loves you more than you even love yourself. God loves you so much. He has a perfect plan for your life. He wants to give you a future and a hope. And he wants you to experience the fullness of joy. Everything that you could possibly have in this life, he wants to give you. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich. But it does mean you can have a joy that is not ever taken away. He does care about that. And, uh, and he's offered to give that to you. And only Satan is standing between you and him saying, no, God, God, God's not going to, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be restricted. You're going to be, you know, uh, he's, he, it's dumb to follow Jesus. And he'll, he'll resort to just name calling if he has to. Christians are losers. Christians are dumb. Christians are weak. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll resort to anything to keep you away from what Jesus wants to give you freely in your life. What does the future hold for us if we accept what Jesus has done? Let me tell you, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those famous verses, but if you've never heard it, and even if you have, stop right now, stop everything you're doing, stop everything you're thinking, and listen to this promise of God. I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope to give you a future and a hope. He knows what he's planning. He knows what's what he wants to give to you. We don't know it all, but we know that he knows. We know that we will be with him, that he will always keep us near to him. We will commune with him and fellowship with him and be completely satisfied in him. And he will give us peace and hope. He is trustworthy. That is our future. Now, did I say you will never fail? No. Did I say you will be trustworthy? No. He will be. The only question is, can you, can I believe this promise? Can we put our hope and our trust in him? If we do, we can easily run into his presence, accepting what Jesus has done for us, allowing the precious blood to wash away our sins, and living as his child with a renewed heart and spirit and new desires to do his will. And if we can't believe it, then we're going to run away because all we have left is self, pride, confidence in our own abilities. Going on, Peter said to him, If all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. 
I'm sure Peter had some vibrato when he said that because that's about the most prideful sentence ever uttered in the history of sentences. Peter thought the other ten would be capable, might be capable of such an act of betrayal, but he assumed he was too strong, too spiritually capable to even consider such terrible behavior. But Peter has forgotten how he started out with Jesus. Do you remember how Peter started out with Jesus? Jesus asked Peter to cast his net out of the boat, and in a miracle, it was filled with fish, even after Peter had been fishing all night long. And Peter, what did he do? He said, oh, I knew those fish were there. No, not at all. Peter was convinced and convicted that he was a sinner and he fell on his knees and he cried and he wept and he told Jesus, depart from me because I am full of sin. That's how Peter started. Jesus lovingly raised him and said, follow me, Peter, and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll do everything that's needed in your life. Jesus gave him mercy and grace, which is what Jesus always does if we would just humble ourselves and fall on our knees and say, I am wrong. I am what's the problem. That's how Peter started. He was not prideful. He was not confident in himself, but he was aware of his weakness and his sin, and he freely confessed it. That's the plan, guys. That's the way. Are you there? Do you remember the shame and the weakness when it was revealed by God in your life? Or are you still trying to prove yourself to everyone that you are good or that you are strong or that you are powerful or that you are dedicated or that you are just you and you should be respected and honored? Guys, that is the lie. Peter, when he was first broken, he broke through that lie and he confessed with all his heart, I am a sinful man. I don't even deserve you to be near me. Depart from me, God. And Jesus wouldn't listen to that suggestion because Jesus had his own plan. Peter, I love you. And Peter, I didn't do this to break you and to destroy you. I did it to break you of your pride and to restore you to bring you into my plan for your life, to walk with me, to follow me. And that's the plan in our lives too. Peter had been infected with a virus of self-confidence again. Humility is something that we need to foster and grow like a plant in our hearts because the default state of our heart every morning as we wake up is pride. And if we're not careful, we will end up with a prideful, self-sufficient, self-confident heart, which will lead us to fall like Peter does tonight and will lead us into the Lord's discipline in our lives because he loves us. So look what Jesus says now. Jesus said to him, Peter, oh, Peter, 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 assuredly, I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
Guys, self-confidence is stupid. It just is. Self-confidence, self-esteem is stupid because God knows who we really are and already knows how we are going to fail. So it's just fighting against what God already knows. And he usually tells us beforehand, just like Jesus does to Peter right here this night. And we usually ignore him just like Peter's about to do because we are technically stupid. We just aren't using the wisdom that we could. And yet, he is so compassionate, Jesus is, on us, just like a shepherd is compassionate with the stupid sheep that he's in charge of. If you didn't know, sheep are considered to be dumb. They will walk straight over a cliff if someone like leads them over that cliff. They will walk straight into quicksand if it existed. Jesus tells Peter exactly how and when Peter will fall later this night. He's going to deny Jesus three times before this rooster crows. But Peter spoke more vehemently. Look at this. More vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will never not, I will not deny you. I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. You see that verse? So Peter, he's like leading this charge and his his self-confidence is infecting. It's like the coronavirus infecting his entire, you know, <laughs> 10 friends. I told you Peter was dumb. But I kind of like Peter. He's loyal. He's willing to argue with Jesus. Those are not his problems, really. His problem is simply his self-sufficiency, which is also my problem. It's okay to argue with God. It's okay to be loyal and to question and to, and to talk with the Lord about everything in your life. But what will lead us away from him would always be our pride. Peter thinks he's arrived he thinks there's no way he could fail because of his love and passion for Jesus, for God. So much self-confidence that he doesn't think he needs to pray. We're going to see that next week as we learn about the crushing that happens later. We're going to learn about prayer and the role that it plays. If you don't ever pray, it's because you are self-confident and prideful. That is the root cause of all prayerlessness. It's a fact. Every time in my life that there is prayerlessness, a lack of a heart to pray, it is because in my soul I don't feel my need for God. There is a pride lid over my heart, and that pride lid must be removed in order for there to be anything going between me and God as far as prayer goes. Think about your life. Do you pray? Do you ever pray? If you do, that is a great thing because it is going to grow that humility heart. If you don't, you can know it's because of pride. It's because we don't sense our need for him. He 
he's not the only one that feels this prideful. The All the other uh, disciples are all feeling cocky in their abilities as well. Prideful, listen to this, guys. Prideful, self-confidence teaching is popular. It's very popular. It's popular in churches. It's very popular in public schools. It's very popular on Sesame Street. It's literally popular everywhere. Let me tell you what it sounds like. You can do it. You can give more. You can do better. You can be more. Look to yourself. Try harder. Follow me. Follow my plan. I believe in you. You should believe in yourself more. But none of those messages lead us to pray, do they? None of them do. Because they're not leading us to the humility that is required for a relationship with God. To confess our need and our brokenness to God, to come to Him for help and grace, we must be broken and have our self-confidence crushed. Peter is basically calling Jesus a liar. He refuses to even believe that he can't trust in his own abilities. We, like Peter, must be broken of our self-confidence, and we don't like it. But we cannot get anywhere by trusting in ourselves. If God has chosen you to be his child, then you will learn through many trials that you cannot ever, not ever, not for any reason, not ever trust in yourself. There is one narrow path for us to walk down, and it's not doing good works, it's trusting in Jesus. It's not going to church, it's trusting in Jesus. It's not a path made by our own machete or a map that we're following, it's trusting in Jesus. I'm going to close with one verse from the book of Jeremiah that explains how God really thinks and feels about these two paths we can walk down of trusting in him or trusting in ourselves. And it's Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13. Starts out by saying this, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. So God basically is looking around his entire heaven, all the heavenly creatures, and he's saying, guys, get a load of this. Look at how crazy this is. This is so dumb. This is so crazy. I can't believe this, says the Lord. For my people, my people have committed two evils. All right. So he's got two things he's going to explain here. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil. They've forsaken me. Even though I'm a fountain of living waters, that means a constantly flowing spring in the desert where they lived. It was so, water was so important, you would die without water. And to have a fountain of living waters means a fountain that constantly produced water. And God says, that's me in your life. That's me. And you have forsaken me. You've run away from me. You've chosen to walk in sin instead of walk with me. And this is crazy, God says. I can't believe it. You're my people. I love you. I've saved you. Why would you forsake me when all I want to do is bless you? All I want to do is love you. Why run away? Now look at the second thing. The second thing. And 
hewn for themselves or dug for themselves cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, I can't believe this. My people have abandoned me and then they've worked super hard to build themselves a life, to build their own wells. Then they tried to fill them with water but didn't realize the wells that they broke were cracked and the water that they poured in just leaked out the cracks and now they're empty and broken and have nothing and they're dry and these are my people. I don't want them to be dry. I don't want them to suffer this way but it's they've fallen to the evil way. They've gone their own way. See, they thought they could... They could be where they wanted to be. They could do what they wanted to do. And they could just build a cistern. They could dig themselves their own cistern. But cisterns were made out of solid rock. They would dig out a hole out of solid rock and put water in these cisterns to last them through the dry seasons of their of their existence in the desert. But once you were digging the cistern, if you cracked the, wa- the rock all the way through, the water would just leak out. And that cistern was now good for nothing. It was just a a death trap in the desert where people would fall in and, ah, they fell in a cistern. That's what's going on here. When we walk in pride, we're saying, I don't need a fountain of living waters. I don't need my fountain of living waters. I need my own work, my own plan, myself. And God says, guys, please don't do that. He's astonished. That we would abandon him when he wants nothing but to bless us. You know, as you as you're if you're young and you haven't gotten married yet, wait upon the Lord. Don't trust in yourself to be able to even pick your own bride or your own groom. Don't dig a cistern that is gonna be broken. If you haven't had, if you're still looking for a career, don't dig a cistern that's going to be broken, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. Choose Him.